The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. And we're reading 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you have hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles. Unworthy, to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. I'm excited to look at the word with you. Let's pray and ask for help. Our Father, we want to hear from you now. We thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, you still speak. You're speaking today. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would speak a better message than I could ever be capable of that would hit person who listens, Lord, um, in the heart. Enlighten our minds with your truth and then warm our hearts to love your truth. And that we pray, Lord, that we would be grounded in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So you, you made it to church this morning. Do you ever feel like that in itself is an epic victory? Uh, you, you made it to church this morning. Well done. Sometimes that can be a struggle, and we are very glad you did make it. Some of you have been here for a long time. This will be uh, my 17th year this fall, if you can believe that. And some of you were here long before that. Thank you for endurance with us. Uh, some of you are brand new. We're especially glad you're here. Thanks for checking it out. We hope you feel welcomed. And then others, you're in the middle somewhere. Uh, but whatever your story, I want to ask you a question you may not have thought about recently, and that is this. What do you want to happen in yourself as a result of coming to church? Why are you here, ultimately? How would you answer that? You know, we could flip that question around as well. We could ask it like this. As a church, what do we want to happen in you as we participate in church together? What's our mission? Our mission statement is an attempt to melt that idea down to basics. Uh, so to me, a mission statement is not at all comprehensive about everything Christians can and should do. No, it's, it's more about emphasis, uh, not about everything that we want to happen, but what we most want to happen in everyone. And so this is how we say it, this is our mission, this is what we want to happen in you as a result of coming to church. Grounded in the gospel, we gather to grow in the gospel and scatter to spread the gospel for the glory of God. So for the next four weeks, including this morning, we're going to try to unpack these themes, and I have three goals in this basically. Number one, I want you to see that the mission is biblically driven, because if it's not biblically driven, it's garbage. Um, so we need to see that. Second, we want to just understand again what the mission means. Hopefully a mission statement is something simple and basic that you can remember, but you have some, some thoughts behind it that educate that mission. So see that it's biblical, understand it, and third... I hope you will want it. 
that it would be our mission that we pursue together. And it starts with this first phrase. We want you to be grounded in the gospel. So as we start to think about that, that word grounded, the way I'm using that word, the way, the way I mean that word is, is what's the foundation of your life? Uh, what helps you see who you are and what you're here for and where you're going? Where do you find significance, meaning, hope? How can you be right with God? Uh, what are you leaning on for these huge, huge needs? Uh, there's so many counterfeit gospels. Other news sources coming at you? Hey, ground yourself in this. Ground yourself in that. We want you to be grounded in the gospel. And to unpack that, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, as was read for us. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And if you were reading through the Bible and you opened your study notes and your, in your study Bible, you'd learn uh, 1 Corinthians was most likely written in early 50s A.D., that's really amazing. That means it's one of the earliest Christian documents we have just two decades after the life of Christ. It's incredible. And so we're able to see here what was most important to the apostle and in the churches from the very beginning. Uh, and I think the letter of 1 Corinthians is in many ways an application of the gospel to a group of people who believe it but need to believe it more. And more fully, with more maturity. It's an application to the of the gospel to a group of people who believe it and their behavior. Anyway, by chapter 15, Paul wants to apply the gospel to what the Corinthians believe about the resurrection of their bodies. That's the big context of this chapter. But before he gets there, before he applies the gospel in that way, he describes it. And he says some foundational things that we want to consider this morning. So, three points for you. Number one, the first importance. You know, when, when, a, when a writer says that phrase, right? Pay attention, listen up. This is of first importance. We get that in this passage. Uh, second, second thing, the way to respond to that first importance. What are, you, what are you supposed to do with this first importance? And third, what's the result of that response? So, first importance, the way to respond, the result of that response. Let's dive right in. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. I would remind you, brothers, brothers and sisters, of the gospel which I preached to you. Down in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he's reminding them. Let's just think about that word for a moment. Why is he reminding them? Well, one reason is because this is the most important thing. I mean, think of all the things that are important in the Bible, that are important in the Christian life. Many, many, many important things. But can you say that there's one thing that's most important? This is the hub of the wheel. This is the cornerstone of the building. It's the engine of the car. We're going to remind you of this, Paul says, because it's most important. It's fundamental it's essential in a way that nothing else is. So he's reminding them because it's of first importance. Second, he's reminding them that means that, in a sense, they already know it, right? It's not the first time. You don't remind someone about something they've never heard before. That's not what remind means. No, they, they know it to an extent. They've heard it. They believed it. He calls them brothers and sisters. They're God's family together. So in a sense, they already know it. They, he's, of course, he's reminding them. So if they already know it, why is he telling them again? Why is he telling them again? Because isn't it true about the human life? You can know something but not really know it. You can know something but not really know it. Not all the way know it. No, in fact, there's a, there's a way, even though this church, they know what's most important, they've neglected this thing of first importance. This church, they've forgotten this thing of first importance. They haven't been consistent or wise in applying this thing of first importance. And so Paul's going to remind them. He's going to remind them. He's going to remind them. 
Throughout the whole book, he reminds them. So, church, what is it, this thing of first importance that they need to be reminded of? What is it? Did you see it? 1 Corinthians 15.1. I would remind you, brothers, of the, somebody tell me, the gospel. I would remind you of the gospel. It's the gospel they need to hear again and again and again. It's the gospel they need more and more wisdom and understanding uh, regarding it. It's the gospel they need to see how to apply. It's the gospel they need to be reminded of. Do you need to be reminded of the gospel? Or you got this? I need it every moment. We need it every week. If you come here for very long, I hope you're like, oh, they talk about this every week. That's right. That's right. Because we're going to remind you of the gospel. Now the big question, what is the gospel? Well, I'll admit, um, the gospel is so rich and full and epic, it can be difficult to sum it all up. Um, Everything that will occur because of the gospel. uh, So many beautiful things. So it can be difficult to try to really melt it down. But I just ask you, how would you, if you took that little note card in front of you and tried to write down, if I said, what, what's the gospel? What would you write? What would you say? Try that at home this afternoon if you can. Try to write it down. If somebody asked you out on the street, what's the gospel? What would, what would you say? Let's just start with that word gospel. Gospel means good news. That's really important. Think of the idea of news. News is not first or ultimately something you do, generally speaking. Uh, when you, if you turn on the news, you, you weren't on TV, were you? Um, not most of the time. No, news is hearing about something that has been done, and you're just receiving the announcement of it. At first, there's, there's not much you have to do with it. It's news. So gospel is news. But this kind of news is different if we are to read the news or watch the news this afternoon. We'll see plenty of bad news. This news is different because it's good news. Uh, My wife likes to say it's the beautiful news. It's good news. And so, friends, if you really hear this news for what it is, it is the best news you will ever hear. It's good news. It's good. It's news. It's been done already. What is the good news? Well, I think maybe you can say more about the gospel, but you can't say less about the gospel than what Paul has said here. If we were going to melt down the core message of the gospel, you see so much of it right here. Look at verses 3 to 7. I'm going to read these again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. There's, a, there's, a, there's an emphasis you get already. You see that the gospel is about a person. One person, one man. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ. It's about Christ. And then all the rest of these verses, you keep hearing the word he, 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 he. So already you get this this idea that the gospel is about one person and what he has done. And so I think a good way to start with this is saying that the gospel is about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The good news is him. It's who he is. So we we remember Jesus of Nazareth, the gospel shows us, is the son of God who actually came and took on human flesh. And he did this in order to fulfill all of God's promises from the scriptures about the Christ. Christ means promised king. The promised king who will come, save his people, judge the earth, renew all things. And the gospels are saying, Jesus of Nazareth, that's him. He's the promised king. And so we are talking about the epic person. 
confuse you a little bit, but it's beautiful. Jesus is one person with two natures. You ever thought about that? One person with two natures. How many natures do you have? You probably don't get that question every day. Well, you're human. Jesus is one person with two natures. He has existed eternally as the beloved son of the Father. He is truly God in every way. And yet around the first century A.D., he took on an additional nature. And the eternal son of God was in the womb of a pregnant young lady. He took on human flesh. And so we see here in the gospel, he's the one, the spotlight is on, he's the one pulling the weight, he's the one doing the work. The gospel at its core being does not have me and you in it. I really like that. I need it like that because I'll mess it up. I'm not good news in myself. Good news has been announced to me apart from me about him. The gospel is the news of the person and work of Jesus, and it starts with what he's already done. These things Jesus has done are past tense. It's the news of what Jesus has accomplished. And so there's two fundamental things we want to see about the personal work of Christ. So, so what's of first importance here to Paul? The gospel. And just boiling it down, the gospel is about the person and work of Jesus. The good news of the person and work of Jesus. What has he done? Two fundamental things. The first thing Paul mentioned is he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus took on our flesh so that he could take our place. The good news does start with some bad news if you haven't encountered this. He died for our what? Our sins. If you don't think you've sinned, you won't be very impressed with the goodness of this news. But I would just like to challenge you on that. Um, I think you've sinned. It's not because I know you super well, although, let's be honest, if you know me super well, what do you know about me? One of the things you know about me, I've sinned, <laughs> okay? Uh, you haven't kept a standard. You haven't kept your own standard, right? Haven't you been outraged by what somebody did to you? And then if you're honest, you look around the corner, you're like, mm, I did that. And then try on God's holy standard. Jesus summed it up like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything. And he means every time. And do so according to his word. So, so there, it's like it's not just enough to have vague, happy thoughts about maybe a God out there somewhere. No, it's complete devotion to the God of the Bible. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. This is lacking to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he's not just talking about, oh, I think I did that once. Because how many of you, you're, if you're like me, you're like, I tried that once. I, I did it a little. That's good. But according to the law, you're supposed to do it every time. <laughs> well, my ship is sunk right here. It's over. I've sinned. And then when you take this seriously, that God is a holy God who hates sin. It denies his glory. It denies his godness. It's against his design. It hurts his creation. He hates sin. And he, as the judge of the universe, will condemn sin. And then you realize the bad news that comes before the good news. I deserve his eternal condemnation. And I have no excuse, and I have no way out. There's nowhere to run. Are you ready for some good news now? Jesus came and took our place. He took our place. He lived the perfect life, pleasing to the Father in every way. I don't know, maybe you watched the Olympics and you were amazed by one athlete who won every event or something. And in swimming, you kind of cheat because there's like 25 events you can actually be in, right? It doesn't work that way for ping pong, I don't think. Table tennis, 
table tennis. Uh, and, and you're impressed with this one athlete who, like, wins, you know, oh, six medals. Wow. That is impressive. If you take seriously the idea of sin and how often you do it and how you like to do it and how you fall back into it, and then you consider a human who never sinned, are you not impressed? Are you not impressed? Jesus never lusted. He never coveted. Never. He never lost control of his mouth. Never sinned. It's just, and we could go on and on, but that's unspeakably amazing. He lived a perfect life. He completely met and fulfilled the standard. And then when we deserved God's wrath, he didn't, but he took it so we wouldn't. He took our place. And because he lived a perfect life, he could. And he went willingly, and Paul here is emphasizing, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. It's according to plan. This has been the plan of God from the very beginning, eternity past, to save his people, that he would do it through his son, the Christ, who would live a perfect life and die on the cross in the place of his people. And so Jesus went. We've seen it. He set his face towards Jerusalem. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, motivated by the love of the glory of his Father, motivated by his mercy for his people, fulfilling every promise and intention that God has given all throughout the scriptures. And we could spend all day unpacking the ways the Old Testament points to Jesus, both in specific prophecy, typology, illustration. The, the very history of the people is pointing, pointing, pointing to Jesus. According to the scriptures, he died. And now here's the precious word. He died for our sins. What's, who's included in that word, Our. Paul's included. Paul has sins. He's going to mention these. He finds it precious that Jesus died for his sins. And you know, I love that this is in Corinthians, because if you read Corinthians, Corinthians is a, is a difficult church. <laughs> it is difficult to be in the church in Corinth. There's a lot of problems in this church. But Paul doesn't write them off. And he uses the word, our he died for the sins of messy Christians. Christians who obviously have not figured this out yet. He died for our sins. And you know, that view of Corinth and that church helps me out because that makes me think, you know what, maybe I can be in the hour. Can we say here this morning that Jesus died for our sins? Can you say this morning that he died for your sins? personally, to the detail that every one of your sins against God has already been paid for and already been taken care of to the point where God has poured out all his just wrath for all of your sins, past, present, and future, already, that it was already taken care of, that there's no wrath left, and that it's not even possible for there to be wrath left because the one already paid for all of your sins and that through faith in him you're completely and absolutely and totally forgiven of every sin that would be good news that would be really good news that is the good news he died for our sins it's that first part of the gospel Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures then Paul mentioned he was buried, and I really enjoy this phrase. Uh, why are you telling us this? Does anyone else have that question? Why did you put that in there? I mean, this is the Holy Bible. You only get so much room. Was well, buried. You got that in there on purpose. Why? Friends, I think this looks to the actual historicity of it all. Christianity is unique in a, as a religion because it links itself it links its destiny to historical fact. If it did not happen in real people, real crowds, real historical events, it's not true. 
we're not looking for religious feelings or sophisticated enlightenments. We are trusting actual news of history. That's the only way Christianity functions. If we don't have that, we don't have Christianity. And so when he says, he was buried, what you should be hearing there was that Jesus of Nazareth was an actual person who was actually crucified and actually died. And as the Apostles' Creed says it, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why do we care about that? It's not really to just remember how awful Pilate was, although he's not great. The point is, Pilate was actually a Roman ruler at a certain place and time, and that actual historical Roman ruler sentenced Jesus of Nazareth to death on an actual cross. It happened historically. Moreover, Jesus died on a Friday afternoon in the spring during Passover, and on a Friday evening he was buried in a rich man's tomb, a public cave behind a sealed stone, and a guard of Roman soldiers. And witnesses saw it. We saw the body put in. We saw the stone sealed. We saw the guards guarding. And he was dead. He was all the way and actually dead. His brain waves had ceased. Heart quit beating. Publicly dead. Buried. That's important. Because what happens next? On Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. He literally, actually, physically, historically rose from the dead. His brain waves that had ceased, I don't know what verb I'm supposed to use here, started waving again. They <laughs> he was alive. The heart that, start, that had stopped beating was beating again. The blood was pumping again. The body started moving, and he walked out of the tomb. And the tomb was empty because he's alive. He rose from the dead. It's a historical fact. There's every argument for it. How can you explain what happened otherwise? He rose from the dead. And you know, when the disciples first saw him, they couldn't believe it. Have you read those accounts? They couldn't believe it. They thought they were seeing a ghost. And so you know, remember what Jesus did? He ate their fish. <laughs> You're a ghost. And he took up the flesh, cooked, hopefully well seasoned, put it in between his teeth, tasted it with his tongue, chewed it, and swallowed it. Because that's his way of saying, oh no, I'm physically alive. He's alive. He rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. The Bible said this would happen. Jesus predicted it would happen. And it vindicated his work and confirmed who he is. Look with me at one text. just talking about the power of the resurrection, what happened. Romans 1. Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, a called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Here we see again, by the way, just how the gospel is about the son. The gospel is about Jesus. Uh, verse 3, concerning his son, we continue, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection shows us Jesus' work was vindicated. There's a lot of people who died on crosses, but this one's different. He actually paid for our sins, and that is vindicated by the resurrection. And so you see, in the gospel, Jesus has defeated the ultimate problem behind every other problem. He has defeated sin and its effect, which is death. He won. He beat our greatest enemy. He did what we could not do. It's great news. And part of the evidence of this resurrection is all these appearances. So we have this wonderful account here. Three things to point out about these appearances. Number one, he appeared to crowds. Jesus appeared to crowds of people. It's not some secret mystic religion where one guy off in a shadow somewhere comes up with some stuff and then comes out and tells everybody he's heard from God and you either, oh, okay. No, this happened in front of crowds. Paul says over 500 people, and then he pulls out his cell phone. He's like, I, some of them are still alive. You want to call them? You, you can still call them. They're still alive. It, it can't just be a, a hallucination. It can't just be a myth. He's alive. Moreover, he appeared to skeptics. Why did, why did Paul mention James? 
I, I love asking that question. Why this Paul and not that? There's 500 witnesses. He could have pulled out a lot of people. Why James? Well, James is a skeptic. He's Jesus' half-brother. He didn't believe in Jesus during Jesus' ministry. I assume he was sad when Jesus was crucified, but it's just like, well, he had it coming. He was too, too big for his britches. James didn't believe. And what would it take you to believe that your half-brother was the son of God? And then this is one of those moments in the Bible I'd like to be a fly on the wall. Would you like to be a fly on the wall? When it's in, I don't know, James is sitting in his kitchen and Jesus appears to him. What's up, James? <laughs> ah! He appeared to James. And James became a leader in the church. And then Paul mentions himself. Paul hated Christianity. He wanted to imprison Christians. He wanted to kill them. House to house, looking for them. Put them in prison. Ruin them. What would, what would have to happen for him to come around? Paul says, he appeared to me also. Read Acts and you know what that's like. It overwhelmed him. Jesus rose from the dead. That's the point. He's alive. So what are we saying? What's of first importance? The gospel. It's good news. And what's the gospel mainly about? Jesus. The person and work of Jesus. And what we're highlighting here is he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Then what did he do? He rose from the dead in accordance with with the scriptures, and that is the best news you could ever hear because, listen, God has come as he's promised to save his people, and this means instead of condemnation you deserve, you can be completely forgiven. Instead of alienation from the God who made you and designed you, you can have fellowship with him as his beloved child. Instead of death forever, you can have life eternal and rise like Jesus did to enjoy the new earth, God's people, and best of all, God himself, the face of God forever, all because of what Jesus has done that's the best news there is, and it's true, it's real news. That's first importance. How do you respond to the first importance? Here's our second point. How do you respond? I think you see, you see the response in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 2. There's three main things to show you here. What are you supposed to do with this good news? Hopefully you're sitting there, you either love it already or you're starting to love it. That would be our prayer for you. What do I do with this news? I've just heard this. I heard this news that Jesus came for me, died for my sins, rose from the dead. He's the Christ. I just heard this. Now what do I do? Some people think, well, I've got to go fix myself, and then once I get good enough, I can come back. Don't do that. It takes a lot of faith to think you're going to fix yourself. Really? And then you're going to fix it yourself to be good enough? Really? No, here's what's part of the good news is, how do you receive the good news? Just trust it. Just believe it. Believe it. Receive the gospel means trusting yourself to Jesus. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Receive it. It just means put your faith in it. And listen, real faith is personal. It's personal. Here's what I mean. Faith is not just believing there is a God. Sometimes you talk to people, they're like, I believe there's a God. I believe in God. Okay, that's good. That's a, that's a first start. But this, that's not saving faith. Faith believes God and his word to you. It doesn't just believe in God. You can believe in God and hate God. Faith believes God and his word to you. I believe you. And so God is making a promise. If you will trust in my son, I will account who he is and what he's done to you. Will you trust him? Will you believe me? And faith says, I believe you. I believe you that I can have Christ and what he's done. 
by grace alone, undeserved love of God, through faith alone, not by my own accomplishments, but by his accomplishments. You remember what the gospel has in it? Did the gospel have in it anything about you being perfect or good enough or earning something? The gospel says in it, you can't do that because you have sins. What What did you bring to the gospel? Did you see what you bring? Sins. That's your contribution. Jesus brings everything else. And so the response is to trust him. Look at John 1.12, promise from the gospel of John. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he what? He gave. It's a generous gift. He gave the right to become children of God. You can be an adopted, forgiven child of God right now, no matter what you've done, simply by trusting yourself to the news of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. It's free. Have you received the gospel? And if you haven't, I just want to ask you, I want to help you ask yourself, what's holding you back? What's holding you back from trusting the gospel? Don't let it be that you're not good enough. You're not seeing there what Jesus has done. If he can save Paul, who was killing Christians, he can save you. If it's an intellectual difficulty or concern, ask the question, let's talk. But really and truly, if you're looking at the gospel and it looks good, but there's something in the way from trusting it, deal with that. Think that through. Talk about it. Because you don't want to miss this news. So the first thing we do is we receive the gospel. Do you see that? The second thing, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. You like that? I mean, that's an illustration, right? It's news. How do you stand in news? You can stand in a baby swimming pool. I know what that is like. I can stand in the waves. How do you stand in the gospel, which is news? Well, it has something to do, doesn't it, with uh, an idea of security. It has something to do with an idea of this is my home and I'm not leaving. It has something to do with a placement here where you belong. You're not leaving. I think standing in the gospel, that's something God does for us. Here's an example. Look at Romans 5, 1 to 2. Romans 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We don't have time to tease all this out, but by faith, God justified you. He declared you righteous. He gave you the righteousness of Christ. He forgave you of all your sins. You've been counted innocent, and now you have peace with God. And through faith in him, you now stand in grace. So it's like this room you're in, your whole life, the context of who you are before God is grace. And what's grace? Do you remember? Lavish, undeserved love through Christ for you. And that's, that's where you stand. Do you begin to see where I got the, the word grounded? Stand in the gospel. Stand in the gospel. God has made you stand here in his grace. And so God has placed us there to stand in his grace. And so now, well, let's stand. And there, I mean, it's like a stubborn loyalty Due to a knowledge of what's worth what. The gospel makes me right with God. This and this alone, I'm not moving from it. Here I stand. Think of Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not again submit to a yoke of slavery. People are going to give you counterfeit gospels. Hey, add some, add some works in there. Add some this in there. Add, add something else to be grounded on. Add, add some different news. And, and we want our hearts to be like, mm, I'm grounded in, what are we grounded in? I'm grounded in the gospel. That's of first importance. That's of first importance. I'm grounded right here. I stand in the gospel. The third part, Paul says, you received it, you stand in it. He says, if you hold fast to it, 
How do you hold fast to the gospel? What does that mean? It's not actually something you hold in your hands, right? It's, again, it's a message. It's true. How do you hold fast to it? Do you understand that idea? Friends, there's going to be pressures to forget or not value or not lean into or not love the gospel. We're going to preach through Hebrews here in a couple weeks, and that's what that book is about. Hold fast to the gospel. Because, oh, you, you just you, you get cozy with the stuff going on in your life, or you just get all wound up with the stuff in this world, or you're just, just anything that can distract you, it will. And so here it's like, wait, the, the way to respond to the gospel is to hold fast. Don't leave it. Hang on. Be grounded in the gospel. Did you see what Paul said? Verse two, it's the gospel by which you are being saved. Did you hear that? It's the gospel by which you are being saved. Do you notice the tense of our being? What does that mean? That means that you received it. That wasn't the end. You didn't, you didn't leave the gospel once you believed it. That means holding to the gospel is what is working and transforming your life now to be more like Christ. You cannot grow to love Christ more or obey him more faithfully without holding to the gospel. It's the gospel through which you are being saved now. You need it every day. You need it every moment. So that's what, that's what we want for you if you come to this church. We want you to be grounded in the gospel. What are you tempted to be grounded in? To look to for your identity, your security, your hope, your power, your strength. Are you strong enough? Are you wise enough? Are you good enough? Other news will let you down. Be grounded right here in the gospel. That means we receive it, we believe it. For the first time, that means we stand in it. That means we hold fast to it. So we've seen the first importance. It is the gospel, Jesus, who he is and what he's done. Specifically, he died for our sins, rose from the dead. The response to it is faith and a continual living faith that's grounded in the gospel. You receive it, you stand in it, you hold fast to it. Now let's look at the result. What happens when you respond to the gospel with faith like this? Paul starts talking about his own life in verses 9 to 11. And he says in verse 9, I'm the least of the apostles. Why would you say that, Paul? You wrote most of the New Testament. I'm the least of the apostles. He says, I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That's a verse you got to sit on for a little bit. Does any of you, do any of you have regrets, like real stinging regrets? Me neither. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Mess that up. It was painful. It, I ruined things. I can't fix it. Never forget myself for that. You know, that feeling of regret. Here's the apostle. You read, you read what the apostle says. You read what he does. He loves his local churches. And he knows, I think sometimes when he, went, when he woke up, he remembered sending that one Christian family to prison. He remembered holding coats while Stephen had his head bashed in by rocks. He remembered how he persecuted God's church. And he had that feeling like, I don't even belong in this room. I'm wretched. But guess what? Why do you think Paul loves to preach the gospel? Because he can't live without the gospel himself. He knows it's the power of God for salvation because it saved him. And look at verse 10. In verse 9, he says, I'm unworthy. And in verse 10, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And then three times in that verse, he talks about God's grace. Grace, grace, grace. 
By the grace of God, I am what what I am. His grace towards me was not in vain. His grace worked through me. Three times grace. What's the result of you responding to the gospel with faith? Grace. God's grace poured out on you. It's grace that, number one, transforms your sense of identity. Ephesians, in in my sin, I was without God in the world, without hope. I was lost. I was a stranger. I was alienated. Who are you now because of the grace of God for you as you trust in the gospel? Who are you? The most common term in the New Testament will be beloved children. You're loved. But I don't deserve it. I, I know. But the one who did deserve it took your place. You're loved. Grace. Grace. Even now you are a child of God. Grace. Look at how Paul, Paul talks in Galatians 2.20. This is what it means to be grounded in the gospel. Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. You see that, connect, that closeness? When he died, my old life died. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's what it means to be ground in the gospel. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And then look at these next three words. Who, what? loved me. Okay, you got to ask again. Couldn't he have said, who will always love me forever? Sure. Uh, Couldn't he have said, who loves me so much right now? Sure. Why did he say, who loved past tense me? Why? Because the greatest, most unchangeable picture of God's love for you in Christ will always be the cross. He loved me on the cross. He gave himself up for me on the cross. That changes how I see who I am. He's grounded in the gospel. Grace, this grace not only transforms your identity, it transforms your habits. It transforms your habits. It transforms how you live. Look at verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. In other words, this grace did stuff. And what did it do? Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God within me. He began to work for the glory of God as he proclaimed the gospel and lived it out. It changed how he lived. So listen, don't you dare think that you believe the gospel so that you can be forgiven, and now by some other magic potion, you begin to change your life and how you live. Or you believe the gospel so you can be forgiven, and then it doesn't matter if your life changes. That's not how this works. When you receive the gospel by faith, grace transforms your identity, a child of God in Christ, and it begins to transform what you love and how you think and your habits. So listen, if there's a dark habit you're trying to get rid of, you need the gospel now more than ever. If there's a problem in your relationships, a practice, a, 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 a dysfunction, a distance, you need the gospel now more than ever. If you want to obey the Lord more faithfully, let me tell you, you need the gospel now more than ever because the gospel brings a grace that transforms your life. is the power of God for salvation. This is the grace that transforms your identity. It transforms your habits. So I want you to be grounded in the gospel because it's the best news ever. And through faith in the gospel, you will receive grace and it'll transform you, your identity and your lifestyle. Let me show you one evidence of this and we'll wrap it up. Look at Ephesians 5.1. At this point in the book of Ephesians, Paul wants life transformation in believers. 
And just by the way, we don't believe that when you believe Christ, it's like easy button, you become perfect, and it's no problem. We don't see it like that at all. Sanctification takes a long time. It's imperfect. There's ups and downs. It's a fight. We'll talk about that next week a little more. But, but look at this model for how we change. Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God. Okay, that's a heavy calling, right? Who, who are you supposed to imitate in how you live? God. Be imitators of God. Let's just look at the next command in verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved. Okay, how are y'all doing so far? You ready? Be imitators of God. Walk in love as Christ loved. Okay? How many of you are sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, no problem? What? And what if I can't? What if, what if I'm not doing that right? And, and if I don't, does that mean God doesn't love me? Like, do I have to do this good enough to make it to a certain plateau so that finally I can be accepted by God? That's the way every other religion works, and that's the way a lot of people see Christianity. Be good enough, then finally be loved. That is not how the gospel works. Look, be imitators of God. How? As beloved children. Through faith in Christ, you're already loved before you begin to imitate him. And because you are loved like that, grow in imitating him. Or look at verse two. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. You've already been loved in that Christ died for you. And in the knowledge of his love for you at the cross, let that motivate your love for others. Friends, the only way to live the Christian life is to be grounded in the gospel. So why do you think the gospel is of first importance? I think the answer is this. That is the only way to grace. It's the only way to God's grace. If you want to stand before a holy God based on your own life performance and get what you deserve, then go ahead and move on without the gospel. Good luck. But if you want to stand before a holy God on Christ's life performance and get what he deserved, then believe the gospel. If you want God's power by the Holy Spirit to transform your life, then be grounded in the gospel. And it's of first importance because this, in the gospel alone, is where you find grace, 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 the grace of a new identity, the grace of a new life. So let's be grounded in the gospel because that's where we find grace, and that is where God is glorified. Let's pray. Father, we want to be grounded in the gospel. We pray you would help us just see what the gospel is, love it, trust it, begin to work it out in our lives. I pray for those who don't know you that this morning they would, that they would trust you, that they would delight in trusting what Jesus has done on their behalf. I pray for those who do know you that we would have a new delight in what Jesus has done for us and that we would move forward in being like him because of the love we already possess through what he has done for us in the gospel. Thank you for your grace that comes to us there. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.